We need to talk about ideas, good ones and bad ones. We need to learn stuff about the world. We need an honest, intelligent, thought-provoking, and entertaining review of what the hell happened on this planet in the last seven days. We need to sit back and listen to the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Welcome back, dear listener. This is episode 149 of the Iron Fist Velvet Glove podcast. Paul, it's just you and me tonight. We'll just have to make the best of it. Mm. Uh, the Velvet Glove, he's away. Hugh Harris is locked up in his home because his wife won't let him out again. And we had a special guest organised, but uh, she fell ill and will be with us next week. More about that later. So the 12th man, the Iron Fist, will do our best to run through the events of the week and give you some interesting thoughts and insights as to what's happening in the world. Paul, first cab off the rank, which I didn't even tell you about, was... An article I found in Catholic News that said that a bit of a study by this guy who was estimating the number of Canberrans who would choose to end their lives with voluntary euthanasia if it's legalised. Did I tell you? No, you're nodding your head. You got that one? I'm not sure. What, what do you reckon the figure would be? How many Canberrans a year would... Probably choose a, assisted dying every year. In a year. You see, I don't have my finger on the um, the pulse of how many Australians die in a year, so I really mm. don't have much of a clue. This guy is from the Australian Centre for Christianity and Culture at Charles Sturt University. got the feeling he was not in favour of it and maybe happy to have a high figure if he wanted one. Anyway, he's come up with 65 a year. In Canberra. doesn't strike me as an extraordinary high figure, does it? No, yeah. I think that, that... Got no reason to think that wouldn't be right. And uh, it doesn't worry me if that is the number. 65 people a year deciding they've had enough. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so he's worked out the maths and he's very confident with it. So that's one figure as to what would happen if it's ever introduced. Um, now, our main topic... Twelfth man for well, our, our lead-off one we were discussing it earlier was the use of the N word has come up both in Australia and overseas in recent times. Mm. And dear listener, I'm going to play you a bit of a clip. Uh, the first one, Ray Martin, former sixty Minutes reporter, was commentating on the royal wedding, and he was sort of passing on as an anecdote a story about. Uh, Prince Philip. I'll just read a bit from this article. Actually, no, first of all, I'll play what he said. So bear with me one moment. We'll just give you a bit of this. I must say that yeah. when you talk about uh, Prince Philip there, I remember the headline one of the early days when he was at his worst um, in, uh, in Nigeria, um, was out there on a, a royal tour. True story. And talking his speech about the land of the... Not the land of the Niger, but the land of the... Um, and that was, uh, anyway, those days are gone. Maybe those days aren't gone. <laughs> so anyway, he's got into a bit of trouble for the use of that word. And, well, I guess, Paul, before we sort of discuss the pros and cons of whether Ray Martin should be in trouble, let's also move on to the second instance where this became an issue. And this relates to... Well, 
Have you ever heard of the rapper Kendrick Lamar? Heard of him. Mm. Before this incident? or Oh, yeah, I'd heard his name, but okay. I'm not a follower of his, uh, right. his genre right. or, or his... So he's apparently one of his songs. Do we call them songs when they're a rapper? Or? I suppose we, we're obliged to call them songs, mm. aren't we? Okay. Uses the N-word, and he uses it, and at one of his concerts, he invited a white young girl onto the stage. A fan of his. A fan, obviously a fan, to sing along, as often happens in concerts these days. And And she was probably thrilled to bits to be invited to do it. Indeed. Let's let's play a little bit of what happened there as well. Called him bro. Hmm. What's up? My boy Rohan got to know the rules a little bit. Well, it's just really cool, bro. You have to work. You got to bleep one single word, though. Oh, I'm sorry. Did I do it? Yeah, you did. I'm so sorry. Oh, my God. Should she stay up here, y'all? And, uh, Quickly surveyed the crowd. Should she stay up here? The answer was no. <laughs> she was booted off the stage. It's like the uh, Romans at the Colosseum, isn't it? Asking for the thumbs up or the thumbs down. She mm. got the thumbs down. Mm. I wonder if it had been a um, a young African American woman, if the same thing would have transpired. Of course not. And here's the point: it's an extremely derogatory term. We have to agree, and. Conjures up all sorts of awful historical um, atrocities and injustices and cruelty and the whole schmozzle of what transpired with African uh, slavery in North America. Yes. So what has happened, though, is the African-American community have, in one sense, adopted the word and, um, and have used it amongst themselves as a term of endearment and as a way of sort of taking that word back and... Of and, disempowering it in yes, a sense. Yes, All And good on them, Mike. Totally agree. I think yeah. all words like that need to be disempowered. Mm. So I'm kind of of the view that, yes, a white person shouldn't use that word ever. You're rolling your eyes. Let me finish. And... A black person can use it. But in the case of the young girl coming up on stage, lots of young people don't understand the context and the word and its meaning. And even if they did, in the circumstances of a fan coming up on stage, singing a song that and using the words that he uses in the song, you'd have to cut her a lot of slack. And and he I should have I would have thought, should have said, look. I know you're excited and all the rest of it. That's asking the crowd whether she should be booted off is pretty cruel for somebody who's caught up in all of that. That's and, tough. And it, and it shows that he's not willing to take responsibility for his actions himself. He's he's shifting 
you know, the, the onus onto others. Whereas he was the one who reacted to it when she was singing. He yeah. was the one that stopped the song. And then he totally shifts responsibility for her leaving the stage to the crowd. Yes. I mean, what a gutless moron, really. That was gutless. But he shouldn't have given it to the crowd to kick her off. I think that's oh. tough on, on her. So It shows the, the, the duplicity of people like him. It's okay for him to use that word. Right. That so many find offensive. But and he feels he you know, he's 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 got immunity from, from But it is okay criticism. for him to use that word. Why is it okay? Because uh because he has black skin, he can't be accused of denigrating somebody with black skin. So that's why. <laughs> does does he not raise the sort of, you know, painful historical memory of slavery by using the word? But what they've done is is amongst African American men they will call that call each other the N word as a term of endearment, as a Frequently. as a way of as you said before, taking power away from the word. So that's legitimate. Well look, my point would be if they're gonna take power, take take the force out of that word then they should take it out for everybody. Well, that would then mean you've, you're saying it's okay for white people to say it. I'm saying that there shouldn't be a double standard. I'm saying that if they don't want anyone to say it, then don't say it. Mm. If they think it's okay for some people to say it, then for goodness sake, you know, where do you draw the line? I mean, do we, do we carry around a, a, a skin colour mm. tone card with us? Gets tricky. To, to, to measure our, our skin tones every time mm. we want to say something a little bit edgy like that? Mm. Tricky. But I, I guess I'm okay with it, provided there's an acceptance that not everybody's going to understand. So, for example, my and particularly people from outside of the United States. So my daughter was on a cruise ship as a dancer and they had a sort of a a talent night, if you like, or just a fun night for the crew to get together after midnight and put on a bit of a show on stage of just different stuff. And she, she made up this rap um, routine which used the N-word. And prior to the show, she was talking to some of other comedians who were American or Canadian, and they said, oh, what are you going to be doing? And she said, I'm going to be doing this, and she gave them a bit of the routine, and they said, you can't say that word. And she had no idea, not a single idea of any problem with that word. She'd grown up in Australia. She was only 20 at the time or 19. had heard it on a thousand rap dances that she'd danced to. And didn't understand the context, so it's and that's just going to become more and more the case that there'll be Surely. people who have no knowledge of the significance of the word. Mm. And if you, I mean, honestly, depending on what movies, songs, culture you're listening to, you could hear that word an awful lot and not not pick up that it's a black, a black only word for use. So by all means. Black community, adopt that word and use it yourself. And by all means, the white community, don't use it. But on the other hand, I reckon be very sympathetic for people who don't understand the difference, who haven't caught up with the nuances of the word, I reckon. But you're saying 
You're disagreeing with me. I disagree because I don't think any words should be given that much power. And this was the argument I made with um, a couple of friends I mentioned to you earlier. I was having lunch with a couple of friends, one American, one Australian, both lovely, you know, liberal-minded people. And I don't know why the subject came up, but that, that word, and, and I actually said the word a mm-hmm. couple of times, and they looked aghast. And I said, you know, what's the problem? I mean, in 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 present company, you know, uh, I said, why would that word be a problem for any of us sitting at this table? I said, why is, you know, why is that a problem? And they were just like, well, you can't say that word. And I was like, but why, you know, why would it make any difference to you? Neither of them were of African descent. They knew that I wasn't saying anything disparaging about people with yep. dark skin. Yes. They were just horrified that I could even, the word could even pass my lips. And mm. I just think that's a... A bit like a Voldemort yeah, sort of word. It really he is. He who cannot be named yeah. or shall not be named or whatever it was. Yeah, but yes. it's, it's, it's like swear words of old, mm. you know, when our parents would have been shocked if they'd heard us utter, you know, mm. any, any one of a number of quite, um, you know, Mm. Uh, what considered vulgar words, and now they're commonplace. Mm-hmm. What, what about uh, Ray Martin? Okay for him in the context to use the word? As well, he did, he, he did contextualise it. Mm. Yeah, I don't have a problem with him saying it, frankly. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he contextualised it and he, he used it very specifically as a quotation of something that Prince Philip said, and I found yes. it a bit ridiculous and a bit infantilizing Mm. of the audience Mm -hmm. that the station um, decided it would be cut out or or bleeped. I know the recording Mm. you played had had beeps on it. Did you you add them? No. no. (laughs) (laughs) The Iron Fist Velvet Club audience is... is, I, I didn't have to... Leave it for them. They're a gen- yeah. genteel lot, aren't no, they? No, they've got, they've, they can handle it, I think. Okay, yeah. good. No, that's, that's all you can get now. So when you are sort of scooting around the internet, yeah. that, that's the it's only version censored. that they've got available. That's right. And did you notice um, Ray Martin also said this is, this is a, an example of something he said at his worst? I think those were his words, at his worst. Right. So he was implying that Prince Philip, our Prince Philip, our Queen's consort was a bad person or, or right. was inclined to say bad things. Right. So you're certainly critical of it is what you're saying. <laughs> well, he, is, he put his foot in his mouth quite frequently. We yeah. all know that. I think I'm with you on that one. I think uh, Ray Martin, go ahead and use it because he had it in context. He did. Yeah. He didn't he, use he it. He clearly wasn't using it in a derogatory sense. So I guess on that basis, somebody just singing a song isn't using it in a derogatory sense either. Obviously. Yes. And that young woman was merely reciting the lyrics that she'd been listening to written by that performer. Mm. So in the context, she was not She was treated being derogatory. very poorly, I think, very, mm. very poorly and rudely by that man. As, as we both agreed, if, if the young woman had had a darker skin tone, nothing would have happened. Yeah. That's racism. So in context, it's okay to say the word. <laughs> Surely. We haven't said it yet. I mean, I'm not in the habit of using the word because... Because we've we've scooted around it here. It's okay to say the word nigger if you're you're examining it and 
yeah. using it in context of yeah. what does it mean and you're clearly not being derogatory to somebody That's in your right. use. But do you know there is one word that I that I do have a bit of a problem with that has uh, that some people use, and that's mm. cunt. Right. And I find that really disturbing that people would um, use, you know, part of the female genitalia right. as a derogatory word, as an insult, you mm. know. Well. And I, I take exception when I hear particularly male friends, but even female friends, and, of course, well, they, yeah. Usually, and, it's, a, it's something that a male would say, but uh, but I have heard, I have heard females use it too. Yeah, only a dick would say that. <laughs> only a dickhead, yeah. So, you know, genitalia flies around. Is a, it doesn't? It's not I, necessarily but limited you know, to. I find the, female the term genitalia. "dickhead" much less offensive because yeah. it sort of fits, doesn't it? <laughs> you know what I mean? If a person's brain capacity is the same as a penis, then it's not a lot. <laughs> We're really loosening up now. Um, Paul, this this all circles back to our argument the other week about the Quran and and my argument that it should be banned because of the bits in it that are pretty awful mm. and that are in, well, I was talking about inciting violence, right? We got a message from a listener Janelle, who I've put her comment. Uh, or her message as a comment on last week's episode, okay. dear listener. So Janelle's yeah. a regular, isn't she? She has made some really good comments. She was mm. Janelle's the one who came up with uh, the hospitals. Remember, remember, there's a, uh, a hospital that was encouraging Aboriginal witch doctors to mm-hmm. to be present so that uh, Aboriginal people would be inclined to come into the hospital. And she said, well, "Why don't we just pay them?" Ten dollars a visit or something like that. Yeah. If if that's if that's the, what it takes. Yeah, if the means justify the ends. And she said she wasn't really serious about that as an answer, but it was a. I liked it, but uh, anyway, that was her insight on this on that one. And in relation to our argument, she uh, responded and said, "Great episode as always, guys. We shouldn't outright ban the Quran or mandate that the sword verses be censored. The twelfth man is right." Yet, I agree, we should not allow speech that intentionally or recklessly incites violence. How do I reconcile this? I would argue that people publishing, using or quoting the Quran, or Mein Kampf, or the Bible, etc., do not necessarily do so with the intention of inciting violence. The authors of ISIS magazine Dabik are obviously trying to incite violence to encourage the murder of infidels, and they should be guilty of an offence. Likewise, ISIS sympathisers republishing and distributing it may be guilty of terrorism offences. But then we have many commentators, like Sam Harris, for example, who have quoted from or republished Darbic articles in full. Clearly their intent is not to incite violence, but to show Western audiences the mindset of a jihadist, to better understand this group and their ideology. For a similar reason, we should never ban the shitty bits of the Quran or the Hadith. A bit further on, she says, a sheikh who lectures about the um, bad verses or the Hadith about killing Jews and argues they should be understood literally and are still relevant, he should be guilty of incitement. So what she basically says is you can't have a blanket ban on a text because they are used for all sorts of purposes that have nothing to do with inciting violence. 
intention and context matter. I totally agree. Thank you, Janelle. Janelle, you've convinced me. I'm on your side. I, I, I've changed my mind. It's a compelling argument. So if people are taking those bits and then using them for inciting violence, let's make them guilty of that at that time. But context matters and some people could be looking at it in um, quite legitimate ways that aren't nasty at all, which kind of relates to this sort of nigger argument, doesn't it? People can say it with a sort of an academic look at what it means and there are other people who are using it in a very nasty way. Mm. And how you're using it is the question, not that you've actually said it. Does changing the spelling change it for you? Because in that article it was Mm. noted that um, some African-Americans spell it with an A on the end instead of uh, an R. When they're using it in a friendly term amongst each other, they tend to say nigger. And of Rather course, than there's, a nigger. there's no spelling in spoken speech. Yes. So, but it's an obvious inflection in the voice, I think, in many occasions. But maybe not so obvious to everybody. So, yes, it's an interesting one. So, yes, I like the idea that context matters, mm. and it kind of helps solve this problem and of the. Uh, we've got a confluence of ideas here of, of mm. nigger and the Quran, all and wrapped it, up in the same sort of justification. And, and, and it gets Ray off the hook for yes, now anyway. it does get Ray off the hook. But it doesn't get um, – who, who doesn't it get off the hook? Kendrick uh, Lamar. Uh, yes, he should, have, he should have shown more understanding. And more ownership mm. of the fact that he created the song, you know. Mm. Somebody saying his lyrics. So that's uh, interesting stuff. Another person who's in the news – for what they, well, not what they said, but what she tweeted, is Roseanne, Roseanne Barr. So, Roseanne, the top new show of the TV season, was cancelled by American ABC Network on Tuesday in the wake of star Roseanne Barr making a racial slur on social media about a member of the Obama administration. Barr made the slur in response to a tweet about Valerie Jarrett, an Obama advisor between 2009 and 2017. So Roseanne Barr said about Jarrett that she looks as if the Muslim Brotherhood and Planet of the Apes had a baby. That's nasty. So the network has said that's despicable and you've got a top-rating new show, but we've, we're binning it, done and dusted. What do you think of that, Twelfth Man? Look, I, I always think it's um, it's a little bit offensive for people to make fun of people's physical appearance over which they have no control. You know, I mean, we're born into the body that we that we have, and mm. I always think it's extremely poor taste and and shows them, um, I don't know, a certain immaturity in people when they start making fun of people's appearance. Mm-hmm. I don't know whether Roseanne's show should have been cancelled, but it does sort of show the uh, the calibre of the person a bit, doesn't it, that she would publicly make such a, uh, you know, needlessly unpleasant comment. Well, you know, you live by the sword, you die by the sword. And these celebrities who are making money and a name for themselves through popularity 
if they then say or do things that make them un- unpopular, can't then complain yeah. that their income stream is cut off. And there lies the problem. They're influential and they and some people will take it as licence to do similar things and say similar things. Yeah, well, just the network can say, well, you were going to make us a lot of money, but now as a result of your comment, you're not going to make us a lot of money and we'll, we'll do something else instead. It's the same with Israel Folau when he came out and said, homosexuals are all going to hell. I mean, he was being paid a lot of money as a role model and an idol for young people. Agreed. Not just because of his ability to catch and kick a football. There are other things involved as to why he's paid that amount of money. So if he, in his private life, does something that then devalues that, he can't complain when his contract, next time it's up for renewal, is suddenly a lot smaller. So he's got the right and the freedom to say these things, as did Roseanne Barr. She can say what she likes, but she's got to accept the consequences Mm. that other people might decide, well, now you're not as valuable as you were before, so see you later. I think that's what's happened there. Hmm. So uh, that's the end of Roseanne Barr for the moment. Still on speech matters, way back in episode 100, 12th Man, we mentioned that there was a lawsuit against Donald Trump because he had blocked some people from his Twitter account and there was an argument that that was a breach of the First Amendment. And the case has been heard... And indeed, it's been found to be a breach. So, Oh, really? So he's had to unblock them? Um, well, interesting you should say that. So the ruling is that he can't block people from his Twitter account. That's interesting. Hmm. In the ruling, the judge said, uh, let me just find the relevant bit here. While she said the president should remedy the blocking, Judge Buckwald stopped short of directly ordering Mr. Trump to unblock users. Because no government official is above the law and because all government officials are presumed to follow the law once the judiciary has said what the law is, we must assume that the President and Scavino, whoever that is, will remedy the blocking we have held to be unconstitutional, she wrote. That sounds a bit optimistic to me. Rather optimistic. Mm. Because all government officials are presumed to follow the law. It's a big presumption, isn't it? Yeah. So anyway, Donald Trump can't block, well, legally can't block people from his Twitter account. So there we go. Free speech done and dusted. It's interesting in this day and age. You're personally against a um, a kind of Bill of Rights for Australia and Mm. things like uh, the the various amendments of the American Constitution. Do you find those problematic as well? Some parts are good. The problem with the Bill of Rights is they're necessarily big, vague ideas and there are necessarily conflicts between rights. So, you know, your right to freedom of religion can conflict with somebody's freedom of speech, for example. So what do you do in terms of a conflict between rights? If you have a Bill of Rights then that's going to be decided in some court of law rather than by politicians. And we can't hire and fire ourselves, judges. We can, in theory, get rid of politicians and change so, the law. So, so a Bill of Rights is no, no substitute for just 
well-written law. Yes. You know, what right is missing? Well, write an act to protect that right if that's what you feel needs to be done. But 12th Man, Australia, no Bill of Rights and arguably one of the best records of human rights on the planet, even though the left won't agree, but you'd much rather live in Australia than a hell of a lot of other places. And, And we don't have a Bill of Rights, but all sorts of... Crazy countries have a Bill of Rights. Yeah, even I, I believe I've seen dissidents in China claiming that mm. they had not broken the law and that they had a constitutional right to free speech in China, mm. and yet the government will lock them up anyway. Mm. So, you know, what you'll find in America is if you get enough judges of the correct persuasion, they'll overturn Roe versus Wade and do it on you know bill of rights grounds yeah. and out of the hands of of government you know you, you, that's in the hands of of a stacked judiciary so that's the problem and judges make some terrible mistakes they're not yes. in touch people with the community so i wouldn't be counting on them to be always sensible and making the right decisions and why do they make so many bad judgments? Is it just because they're human like the rest of us and their their understanding of the world and of of human life is uh, dependent on their personal education and life experience? Yeah, I don't think they get out enough. They don't get out enough. Yeah, well, if you hang around barristers long enough as well, that'll, that'll poison your view on the world. And so. they get, they're pretty well remunerated as well, aren't they? Yeah. So wouldn't you think they'd... Do a little, make a little bit more effort. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, you've just cast a broad brush there, but we, we don't want that in the hands of unelected officials. A lot of that, I think, should be done by elected officials. So that's my view on Bill of Rights. Okay. Mm. Uh, 12th Man um, went to a wedding on the weekend and lots not, of. Not your own, I take it. No, no. My son's wedding. Oh, how was it? One of the, possibly the best wedding I've ever been to. It was fantastic, really, really good. And just beautiful bunch of young people there who just restore your faith in the in the young people of the world today, 12th man. That's all, a nice story. Yeah, you know, all the negative stuff I've said about how we're all doomed. Yeah. Well, we are all doomed, but these people will delay it just a little bit, I think. Mm. So, But are they a representative set of young no, people? No, they're not. So they're the, they're the 10%, not the 1%. You know, they're, 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 all, they're all going to be fine. But, uh, well, not all of them, but they're in a category of, of well-educated and, you know, a lot of engineers and in positions that, and doing jobs that require high cognitive skills that can't be outsourced to robots easily. So, you know, a lot of them in that sense will be fine. So, you know, it did give me hope, just such great young people. But if any of them are listening, because I did plug the podcast during my speech, <laughs> guys, you need to get worried about your generation and what's down the track. And one of the... The, the big things, actually, uh, as part of, as we're sitting around waiting for, I was with the, the groom, obviously, and the best man, groomsman, and we're playing cards and stuff, and conversation got round to, this is before the wedding, you know, just while well, the girls are getting their makeup on. Sex, and go, of course. Well, uh, religion and politics. <laughs> oh, sorry. Paul. So, and I got round into a conversation with Peter about what the podcast was about and stuff, and he said that 
look, you know, when it comes to religion, it really had a, a good place in the sense of holding societies together with some sort of moral framework and that we don't need that now because we're educated enough that we don't need it, but it had a place in maintaining sort of civil order for a long time that otherwise wouldn't have occurred. What, what do you think of that theory? I think there's something in it, I mean, historically. Right. I mean, I think there is some truth to the, the claim that, yeah, religion did provide a sort of um, moral sort of structure for people's lives. I'm, I'm not, obviously, not, not saying it was always a good one, mm-hmm. but what do you think, you know, would have would have been there to provide that without religion? Because, you know, if you go back in time, most people were incredibly ignorant about reality, just simple reality. You know, people were caught up in magical thinking. A lot of people still are, obviously. So, so I guess what the picture that's being painted is that without religion, people would have just been stealing, killing, looting, plundering, raping wherever possible and that religion kept them in check. It seems to be the argument. Maybe not, because if, if you look at some simpler, like, um, band-level societies, they certainly had what we would describe as religion of a sort. They had superstitions and various beliefs that were, you know, create, generated by the human imagination at some, some point. Mm. Um, and that more or less kept their societies in, in some sort of order, some sort of moral order. Hmm. But... Um, See, I used the example of China. Hmm. I said, well, there's a society that's basically uh, been going for millennia without religion and they've conducted a civilised society for the most part. It so, hasn't really been religion-free, though. Well, so enlighten me. So, I mean, well, they had um, Taoism. Right. Which is, I don't know how old, I don't know what the experts would say how old that is, but that was a, um, a sort of a, an ethical system based on observing nature and the forces of nature. Right. Um, it was a sort, sort of, of an animism type yes, of thing. A sort of, uh, yeah, I think it was a sort of a blend of human ethics and animism in right. a sense. And then there was con- so-called Confucianism. Yeah, but which, that's not really... Which was an ethical uh, yeah, system. It doesn't have a supernatural element. It doesn't element have a supernatural it. element. But part of uh, Confucianism was um, the veneration of ancestors. Now, that does have a sort of a supernatural uh, aspect to it because they did, you know, ancestor worship was was really central in the lives of traditional Chinese people. Mm. Um, that was also transferred to the other East Asian countries, Korea and Japan. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, they did. And Buddhism, even though Buddhism in, in essence isn't a, about supernaturalism, it was certainly corrupted by supernaturalism and a lot of Buddhists did in fact and do in fact participate in rituals that have strong supernatural uh, flavour. Mm-hmm. Um, so China, you shouldn't imagine the Chinese were free of religion. They're, as, as a nation, incredibly superstitious still to this day, a lot mm-hmm. of them. Mm-hmm. And, sups, and superstition and religion are, you know, opposite... Well, they're not even opposite sides. They're, they're elements of the same... 
um, phenomenon of magical thinking. You know, mm-hmm. this idea that if you can tap into these invisible forces out there in the universe, mm-hmm. you can somehow influence the course of events in the future. Mm. If I had my time again with Peter, I would have referred him to, to pirate society. Have you heard the discussion about pirates before? Okay. don't think so. So I've got an interesting book here. It's, it's called The Invisible Hook by Peter Leeson, and he examined... Uh, pirate society, so pirate ships and how they operated. And this is in the 18th century. And uh, the popular image is of a pretty rough crowd with mayhem and killing and and law of the jungle sort of operating on the ship. And the opposite is the case. They were actually conducted in a very civilised manner. So a lot of the... Um, participants on the pirate, a lot of the pirates were ex uh, merchant uh, vessel seamen and um, part of the different naval sort of armies that had been around and then got disbanded. And they had terrible times under merchant seamen. With the captains were just horrendous. So they would be beaten and flogged and starved and and really taken advantage of on these ships. And so when they turn to piracy, the first thing is that uh, there's no outside owner of the pirate ship. So all of the pirates own their pirate ship. It's a cooperative. It is a cooperative (laughs) society, indeed. But wasn't the pirate captain as onerous as some of the other captains? The, The captain of a pirate ship was elected by the pirates under a democratic process. So there had to be a majority vote to get a captain elected. Now, the danger is that once you've elected somebody with power like a captain, he could still ruthlessly exercise power and make life miserable for people. But what they did was they also elected a quartermaster. So the captain was actually only responsible for battle tactics so when it came time they could see a ship on the horizon uh, and they thought this might be a potential boat for us to, to take, the captain was in charge. So he, it was his decisions as to what directions they took regarding the wind and how the whole operation happened and boarding the, the, the other vessel and all the rest of it. So, but at other times the quartermaster was in charge. So he was in charge of doling out rations and doling out punishments and sorting out disputes between pirates. And so there was a division of power, much like we have in a modern democratic society in that we try to, rather than put all of our power with one person or one body, we try and separate powers. So they separated the powers between the uh, captain and the quartermaster and so that the quartermaster couldn't abuse his position, they also had constitutions. So they had written constitutions outlining what would happen in various circumstances and how disputes were to be resolved. They also had a disability insurance scheme. So if people, pirates got injured, then for the loss of an arm or a loss of a right arm or a loss of a left arm, there were different payments. Seriously? Yes, 
Absolutely. Did they have gay pride parades? <laughs> no. And uh, so if, uh, if an ordinary pirate on a ship was, was to be paid one share of, of booty, the captain and the quartermaster were only entitled to two shares. So the captain and quartermaster only earned twice as much as the average pirate on a pirate ship. Do you think that was uh, generally true, though? Yes. Yes. So this guy in this book is uh, running through various uh, different pirate ships and some very well-known pirates. Captain's logs. Yeah, indeed. And, and constitutions. And you see, it was a democratic process. And again, these pirates owned their ship, so they could hire and fire captains at will if things weren't going to plan, and the same with the quartermaster. They so, had, in fact, stolen the ship, hadn't Indeed. They? That's why they owned it. So <laughs> so this is one of the things where you've got so the proletariat so long, owning so the means of the, capital. Yeah, so long as the cooperative is democratically run, they can well, steal well, stuff and call it their own. Well, well when, when people own the means of capital, sounding like a Marxist here, but... When when people own the capital, then it's in their interest to have it function correctly. And as as you know, they knew there was no point in having fights and people stealing and all the rest of it at any time. So the the booty and treasure that they collected was in a treasure chest and whatever, just sitting, not locked away. It was just on the in the sleeping quarters, mm. and nobody at any time could have any you know, treasure of any sort on them. Mm. So that would be divided up at another time. Yeah. So a very cooperative society with um, – and the captains and quartermaster got the same rations as the pirates and it was a very – the captain awesome. would have had his own room. No. No? No. Captains were in the same quarters as the as the regular guy. Really? Yes. Yes. It's hard you'd, to believe, isn't it? You've been watching too much um, Pirates of the Caribbean, 12th Man. So. Well, I've only seen the first episode, in, yeah. in fact. But okay. I did love Treasure Island as a boy. Right, yep. So anyway, this is The Invisible Hook by Peter Leeson, and I'm about halfway through it, and fascinating in that pirates actually organise themselves in a very civil way. It's quite surprising, isn't it? Mm. Were you but surprised? Um I'd heard about it through an article. That's why I got the book, and it, it fascinated me. So that would be my other argument with Peter, one of the groomsmen, would be, well, you don't need religion in order to conduct a civilised society because, believe it or not, pirates were actually quite civilised in many respects. So, I wonder yeah. if the pirates, um, like most people of their age, were very superstitious. I imagine they were. Oh, and probably there would have been different things. Yeah. yeah. And how, I wonder what sort of impact that superstition would have had on their actions, their decisions, probably some. Oh, you know, a bird flying in the wrong direction may have meant bad, white, o- bad a, omens or something like that. A white bird or a so, black bird? Well, yeah, indeed, could have been different. So who knows? Anyway, that's Pirate Society for you. Interesting. Mm. Dear listener. Not too long ago, you looked at your podcast app and saw that a new episode of the Iron Fist and Velvet Glove podcast was available to download. 
Did you silently think to yourself, Great, a new podcast. I like listening to those guys. If so, then you qualify as a potential donor to the podcast. Your donation will help cover some expenses, but more importantly, your donation tells the boys that they are on the right track and to keep up the good work. A dollar a show is all they ask. Go to their website at ironfistvelvetglove.com.au and click on the donations link. So yes, young people that I met at the wedding, you guys need to have a good hard look at the society that you're inheriting because it's got some inherent problems in it. And I've got a link to a few different articles here. John Hewson, former opposition leader, he looked at the housing um, crisis and he says that uh, just all of the benefits that are increasing the price of housing is intergenerational theft is how he's calling it. So the capital gains concessions that are in there and the negative gearing concessions are just making it harder and harder for you guys. You need to vote for somebody who's not who's going to stop that, which I believe Labor is talking about doing. So yeah, they're look, talking about it. Look carefully at that one. The other thing is I've got a link to an article about we had a discussion about new technologies and robots and how many jobs were going to be lost in the future due to robot technology, talk man. And one argument is that just like every time in the past when there's been new technology, it will mean that certain jobs disappear, but they're replaced with other jobs which are perhaps more interesting or better or whatever. So you got any thoughts on that process? It would appear to be almost inevitable, doesn't it, in developed economies that automation and mechanisation will increasingly relegate some people to unemployment. Is, yeah. Is is it not inevitable? I would have thought so. This is a different kettle of fish. It's so. quite different to what happened previously, isn't it? Because yeah. it's effectively not just relegating old workers to the sidelines it's saying we don't need as many workers for anything as we needed before well robot technology is is going to create robots that can do the job as well if not better than human beings in many areas and there'll be no need for uh, human beings to do those jobs mm. So in the past, improvements created new jobs where people had to then service and maintain the machines uh, to some extent, and I guess robots will have to be serviced. But even then, robots will be designed to service robots. It's a worrying trend. So if you were interested in the topic and the argument as to which way it's likely to fall, is it going to be the case that jobs will just be lost and people will be unemployed or will new jobs be created? There is a link to an article from the International Monetary Fund Working Papers, an article by Berg Buffy and Felipe Zanna, and the title is, is Should We Fear the Robot Revolution? The correct answer is yes. And just in the summary of it, it says... We may be on the cusp of a second industrial revolution based on advances in artificial intelligence and robotics. We analyse the implications for inequality and output using a model with two assumptions. 
robot capital is distinct from traditional capital in its degree of substitutability with human labour. And only capitalists and very skilled workers benefit. We analyse a range of variants that reflect widely different views of how automation may transform the labour market. Our main results are surprisingly robust. Automation is good for growth and bad for equality. In the benchmark model, real wages fall in the short run and eventually rise, but eventually can take generations. And in the report, they talk about 20 to 50 years. So there's a massive upheaval coming. You need to start, well, taking that into account. But it seems young people are not 12th man because they surveyed some millennials and asked them um, what they thought about automation. And amongst millennials, by the way, what do you think a millennial is? What year? A millennial? Is that someone born in the 1990s? Sort of, yeah. Um, in this survey, they've classified millennials as somebody born between 1983 and 94. Hmm. So that's, Why those particular years? I don't know. In this survey... They previously went from 82 to 99, but they redefined millennial to be from 83 to 94. So that's one definition of a millennial, if you like. And then after that, you're a Generation Z. Anyway, amongst millennials, 45% said automation would improve and support their work. 27% said it would have no effect. 18% said it would replace at least part of their job and 10% didn't know. So I think... Amongst millennials, they need to really have a good, hard look at themselves. <laughs> it's going to be worse than that for you guys. So, 12th man, if all of these jobs are going to disappear, what was your view on universal basic income? Did you think it was... I, I don't have a view, to be honest. I, I, um, I'd like to get more information about it and more other people's opinions. Um, mm-hmm. I don't have a strong view on it. it. It seems like it might be an inevitability if you're going to um, you know, keep people eating and with roofs over their heads if, mm. if unemployment is going to rise to those sorts of levels. So, But where does the money come from is the, is the big question, isn't it? I've got to link you to another article. Part of it I'm reading here says, if we require money to live and money can only be obtained by selling one's labour, how do we obtain money to live when machines can do almost everything we can more cheaply, more consistently, more safely, more quickly, and overall more efficiently than we ourselves can? How do we? Well, there's three ways. We can either stop requiring the exchange of money for basic needs, essentially making certain things free, or we can guarantee that everyone can always find paid work enough to fulfil their basic needs, or we can stop requiring the exchange of work for money by paying everyone an income whether they work or not. And the amount would just need to be sufficient to cover basic needs. You've really only got the three options. Mm. I'm, I'm, I'm of the view that um, work provides more than just money to pay the rent and buy food. I think, mm. I think there really is something in the notion that work... Um, provides um, sense of self-worth and dignity and 
Mm. You know what I mean? And it gives you it gives you a meaning and purpose as it gives you a role in society. So the question would be, if you paid people money just enough to get by, would they then want to work to get extra money for nice things in life? Or would it create a, just a permanent underclass of people who feel like, you know, jobs are only for the elites, you know, jobs... In, you know, employment might be just something that becomes something that's a very rare thing and just for those who are in that upper echelon of society, do you think? Hmm. I think people still want to work. I think so too. I think, I think most people will want people to work and will want to try work. and earn some money and, you know, buy extra toys and nice things and mm. all the rest of it. So people will still prefer to work yeah i would think so and there'll be a class of people who won't but they probably don't work now anyway i mean if you want to just live at byron bay in a share house and smoke dope half the day and eat lentils you can what they do in byron bay you can get away with it well in the maybe not in byron bay now it's probably too expensive but (laughs) but you know in the outskirts and the back hills of mwoolumba no doubt they do so people who want that to do that can already do it i guess can we get some verification so, of that? Yeah, I, from the uh, the listeners in Mwilumba. We need to make a trip down to Mwilumba and have a look. Or Mullumbimbi. So, yeah. Um, Do a field trip. Yeah. Anyway, still in this article, it gives an example of uh, oil rigs, and it said how that when prices were high for oil and gas, then these companies just didn't mind having lots of workers and paying lots of money because they could just afford to, and the um, prices dropped and therefore the number of rigs dropped. But then when prices increased, the industry decided, you know what, we've got too many employees that are too expensive, so let's just do things a different way. And with a very, within a very short time, they uh, developed uh, automation, a thing called iron roughnecks, which are robotic drill hands, and what once took 20 people now only takes five on a, yeah. on a drilling rig. So there's a graph showing the number of rigs and number of employees plummeting as the oil and gas price plummeted. And with the price increasing, the, rig, the number of rigs is, is increasing dramatically, but the employee numbers are just stagnant and flatlining because they don't need the employees. And that's just a small but classic example. We see it all the time. Every time you go to a Woolworths for Coles and you go through the automatic checkout, you see it, don't you? Not everybody can be pouring coffees as a barista to make up. That's right. Other forms of mining have seen increased automation as well. Yeah, trucks now, driving down to the bottom of an open-cut mine. Yeah. Driven Without. by a man sitting in Perth or wherever? Or, yeah, or just on automatic pilot. Hmm. So driven once by a man who did so, or a woman for that matter, who did so as economically on the brakes as possible and then that just system is followed by the robot hmm. and monitored by somebody in Perth monitoring 20 trucks, if you like. Hmm. Yeah, It's scary. One of the, our episodes recently just got really depressing and had one of the listeners I came across at uh, a podcast meetup. He said, Trevor, I just had to stop listening. It was too depressing. <laughs> Did you – because you never you never do the right thing and give out the lifeline help number. 
at the end of the program, <laughs> do you? Yeah, maybe I should. Yeah. I think I'm heading down another depressing track here. Oh, so, dear. Do, do you want to talk about your your pet topic at all before I'm, we get too depressed on, on economics? Or I'm, I'm, I'm worried I'm heading down it. to a vortex. I'm uh, open to it. Right. So you've come across some articles about Canada, hmm. which you know, Canada and Australia have got a lot of similarities in many ways. Many ways. Big areas, small populations, relatively large deserted areas, an indigenous population that is not doing well and is unhealthy and, and spending has a lot of time historically in... been hard done by yep. by the European settlement settlers. Yep, with drug problems and jail problems, and but also with similar noble savage issues, shall we call them? Twelfth mm. man. How do you? How would you? Yes. Yes, but I think the noble savage is is largely something that's been concocted by non-indigenous people, frankly, by probably well-meaning people who think that um, you know because indigenous people have had such a bad time, um, have decided to, if you like rosy up the image of the indigenous um, culture and lifestyle. And, and, and obviously it's in the interest of indigenous people, I suppose, to go along with that whole, this whole story about how wonderful life was for indigenous people before the Europeans came along and messed things up. Mm. But I, I don't know, have you read much or studied much about indigenous societies? Look, I did a little bit of study at university. I did, in fact, one course which was in, you know, they call them First Nations people now, but at that time that was going back a few years, the um, convener of the course called it Fourth World Peoples. Really? So Yeah. So, you know, the old one, two, three world mm -hmm which is obsolete now because the first world was the developed West, yep. the second world was the Soviet bloc, ah. and the third world was basically everybody else. Yeah, developing countries. Yes, but yes. of course third world now is used to mean undeveloped countries anywhere. So yep. it's, it's really obsolete terminology. But anyway, he called it um, fourth world peoples, meaning right. indigenous people. Yep. And it was very interesting. So I, I you know, had I had a pretty good exposure to the uh, cultures of Indigenous people from right around the world, in fact. And I, I found it very, very interesting. But look, what um, you know, since since I've become more interested in it and did quite a bit of study of of religion as well, I've come to the conclusion that um, it's it's a mistake to. Uh, to to how should I put it? There are people who think that indigenous religious beliefs and practices are somehow more pure or more closer to something wholesome and earthy than our so-called Western religions, which are in fact Middle Eastern religions. Yes. Um, and and I think there's something unhealthy in that whole mindset. So the skeptic community will poo-poo traditional Abrahamic religions, for example, readily. Yes. But but a, a First Nations person smoking a pipe and telling a dream, dream time story will... Gets a free get, pass. Get, right. Absolutely. Is the, and is and we, see it, yeah. we see it in Australia. And one of the articles that we were reading 
Um, I've got the story. I'll read a bit. Okay. So this is from this uh, Canadian author who said, A few months ago I spoke at a small academic conference in Toronto about the future of Canada. As with many events of this type in my country, it began with sacred rituals. An Ojibwa elder described to us as keeper of sacred pipes took to the podium and showed us a jar of medicine water. In her private rituals, the elder explained, she would pray with this water and talk to it as she smoked her pipes. After this, she instructed us to join her in paying respect to the four directions, which required that we stand up and face the indicated compass point, moving clockwise from north to west as she performed her rituals. With this sacred water, we smudge this space, she said. Let us live the lesson of being in harmony with all creatures. Then the elder instructed us to bend down, touch the floor and say, Migwitch, thank you, in her Ojibwa language, to signal our gratitude. The room was full of middle-aged former politicians who, like me, did not want to seem impolite, but after turning in place on command, the floor-touching business seemed a little much. Nevertheless, the men and women around me began lurching downward, extending palms towards the floorboards until the whole room resembled a congregation a congregation at prayer. There were only perhaps a half a dozen of us who hesitated slightly and were now anxiously casting eyes about the room for co-conspirators. I tried to look nonchalant as I remained upright, but I wondered whether some conference official would call me out for this act of defiance. Blah, 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 he goes on. So... Um, there was something more serious at play, for the whole scene was a microcosm of a larger cultural phenomenon that's been playing out in Canadian society for generations. How did it come to be, I wondered, that this room full of intellectuals and policymakers, plucked from among one of the most secular nations on earth, should be called upon to genuflect en masse to animist spirits? Yeah. What would you have done, Trevor? Uh, I would have just stood there politely. Yeah, I think I would have yeah. as well. Yeah. I mean, so. you, d- you don't deliberately want to be offensive and, you know, yeah. just be a shit stirrer in such events. But yes. it's like the Lord's Prayer to open Parliament. I have a strong objection to that. I think you do too. And um, And yet, you know, it's defended on the basis of it being that's the way we've always done it. That's our tradition and why, you know. It's harmless, they would probably say. Oh, look, it's harmless enough. Hmm. But it isn't harmless because it it, un, it it lends respect. It lends un, undeserved respect to a superstitious ritual that has no real power. Hmm. You know, I mean, we all know there's no God up there looking down yeah, on yeah. us. I, I don't come across the Lord's Prayer very often in my, in my day-to-day life. No. But, but something that's on a similar line that I do come across, and you would as well, would be that if you're at a meeting of some sort in a government building, their first speaker, and often the second and third speaker, will begin their speech by wishing to pay their respects to the local Aboriginal tribe, their leaders past, present and future. It's superstition, pure and simple. It's also racist. Is it? Yeah. Because it's only their ancestors and not the people present. Yeah. It is in that sense, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. 
So, you know, I just find it... Look, my... my I, that riles me. And, again, I stand quietly. My, you know, I don't my, get up and hold a placard yeah, saying, bullshit. Of but, course you don't. And my core objection, as I said, is that it lends respect, it lends dignity to magical thinking. And we mm. all can see around us the damage that mm. magical thinking is doing in our societies, societies all around the world. And I think we have to, at some point pull the rug from underneath this whole edifice of magical thinking before mm. we, um, you know, really send ourselves down the drain hole big time. Mm. Last point on First Nations peoples would be that the Victorian government is looking at introducing a treaty with First Nations peoples and... I've got a link here to an article where one of the activists, or an MP, Lydia Thorpe, she's not happy with the proposed legislation, thinks it doesn't go far enough. Mm. And, you know, really what they're saying is, do we pass some legislation that we find isn't good enough? Or do we abandon it completely? Like, do we accept something that's got major flaws, in her opinion, as something, or do we just reject it and go for the best possible? Uh, a treaty with people based on their racial profile is not racist. a good idea. It's, it's not a good idea. It's purely racist. Yeah. And the idea is that there will be some sort of representative body of Aboriginal people who will mm. be consulted when it comes yeah. to legislation and have some voice. Yeah. And... How do you get onto that body? You must have some form of like blood running That's through right. you. And you've got some racial requirements. And interestingly, in recent years, we, we know this is true, that uh, on the national census, the number of people who identify as Indigenous has gone up um, dramatically. Yes. And, you know, without any really credible biological explanation as to how their numbers increase so rapidly. Yeah. So Andrew's government has been doing fantastic things. Yes, until this. But <laughs> this is the thing. This is where we are. We're, we're relatively left wing, but when it comes to immigration and Aboriginal affairs, we mm. tend to have what would be considered some sort of right wing view, I guess. But, yeah, I don't but, consider it right wing. No, I don't no. think you really do either. No, but we're just saying, no, you can't have special privilege. That's where, that's where that's we start off with our secularism. We're for equality. That's right. Egalitarianism, yes. not for special privileges. Yes. And it's, it's really stupid to say, well, yeah, there's this subset in our community who historically had a really bad time and many of them are still doing it tough. So yes. we're going to, we're going to enact reverse racism to try and balance out their their bad times, you know, by yes. giving making giving them special privileges and special rights yes. based on their descent, based on their ancestry. Yes, yes, it's it's just wrong headed. Look, you know, I'm not a big fan of Malcolm Turnbull, um, but you'll recall uh, late last year there was a proposal put to him and his government regarding the so-called Uluru Statement. Mm. And basically Simply. what they were asking for was an elected representative body 
made up only of Indigenous Australians that were supposed to advise the government on Indigenous matters. Yes. But it was, in, in, in conception, a racist body. And Turnbull, quite rightly, you know, these were his words that I found in an article. He said, our democracy is built on the foundation of all Australian citizens having equal civic rights. A constitutionally enshrined additional representative assembly for which only Indigenous Australians could vote for or serve in is inconsistent with this fundamental principle. Now, I totally agree with Turnbull on that. Mm. Twelfth man, clearly our Aboriginal brothers and sisters in many, many communities are doing it tough compared to the rest of the population. Is that the result of discrimination? Look, I, I think it's, a, it's the result of a complex combination of factors, historical and cultural. Now, you know, my, my study at university led me to the view that culture is incredibly uh, deterministic Mm-hmm. in human behavior. Mm-hmm. Now, I, you know, if Aboriginal Australians want to go and live as their ancestors did in the bush, mm-hmm. they're free to do so. But if they want to enjoy the same standard of comfort as as most of us enjoy, then I think they have to come to some sort of realization that nobody's going to give it to them on a plate forever. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not suggesting they, they do have it given to them on a plate now, but they certainly get a certain level of assistance from the government that isn't given to other members of the community in some respects. Um, then I think they're going to have to wean themselves off this idea that tradition is sacrosanct and that tradition is worth preserving in every case. I think... Because certain cultural habits can be very damaging. They can be. Yeah. Just as yeah. us of European ancestry have abandoned certain customs that would have been common in European cultures because they turned out not to enhance good life. Mm. I think Aboriginal Australians are going to have to come to a similar reckoning about their culture at some point. Yeah. Because from a legal point of view, we've erased a lot of discrimination Legally. And we've, in fact, created positive discrimination. The problem for the Aboriginal community is, is, is as a result of previous discrimination and as a result of other factors, they have um, cultural artefacts hanging around their necks like a noose or that they're dragging along that are holding them back. Yeah. And sure, that's not their fault necessarily because some of that was imposed through what happened historically. But nevertheless, the problem is now a cultural one. It really is. It needs to be recognised as such. Legally, as as you just said, legally, most of those barriers to their social advancement have been dismantled. Mm. So one of the articles you alerted me to talks about a theory of uh, a disparity fallacy. So I'll just read this little bit here Um, because he talks about some American commentators. I call it the disparity fallacy. The disparity fallacy holds that unequal outcomes between two groups 
must be caused primarily by discrimination, whether overt or systemic. What's puzzling about believers in the disparity fallacy is not that they apply the belief too broadly, but that they apply it too narrowly. Any instance of whites outperforming blacks is adduced as evidence of discrimination. But when a disparity runs the other way, that is, blacks outperforming whites, discrimination is never invoked as a causal factor. Here's a clear example of the disparity fallacy. A recent study of researchers at Stanford, Harvard and the Census Bureau found that among those who grow up in families with comparable incomes, black men grow up to earn substantially less than the white men. A New York Times article attributed this disparity to the punishing reach of racism for black boys. But the study also found that black women have higher college attendance rates than white men and higher incomes than white women, conditional on parental income. The fact that black women outperformed their white counterparts on these measures, however, was not attributed to the punishing reach of racism against whites. Economic disparities that favour blacks have been reported for decades, yet they have rarely ever been attributed to anti-white systemic bias. Uh, A 1994 New York Times article reported that among college graduates, black women earned slightly more money than white women did, and black college-educated couples out-earning white counterparts is another statistic. So these things, differences between groups, well, for a start, statistically... There will always be differences between groups. There just has to be. I mean, if you take groups, it would be extraordinarily coincidental if if they were exactly the same. So there's going to be differences. Now, some of that's going to be just random. Some of it's going to be systemic discrimination. And some of it's going to be cultural. Hmm. So we need to address which one it is if we're thinking about fixing things up. And Indeed. Yeah, we mentioned previously with Aboriginal people, if you're going to continue with attachment to your spiritual homeland, then you can't expect to have the same modern standard of living that people in urban centres enjoy. No, if they hold up their their traditional lifestyle as some sort of, you know, golden age, well... They're living a delusion, really, aren't they? I mean, it's not as if their lifestyle was totally wonderful prior to the arrival of Europeans. I mean, you know, some of them might have done relatively well, but, you know, their material existence was pretty rudimentary and there would have been a lot of discomfort, daily discomfort and hardship, you know. Mm. For goodness sake, they didn't have antibiotics they didn't have modern surgery. People would have died from relatively treatable injuries or diseases, mm. I imagine. Mm. So life was not all wonderful. Indeed. Right, 12th man. Well, I wouldn't call that a positive note to finish on, but it's the best we're going to do tonight. <laughs> if, I, if I return to economics and, and the decline in America and, mm-hmm. and all the rest of it, we'll, yeah, we'll be in trouble. So. Okay. Next week, dear listener, hopefully Meredith Doig, president of The Rationalist, will join us and we will discuss a lot of religious stuff happening in Australia and maybe the Ruddock report will have come out before then, who knows, but we'll be recording that on Tuesday night, so uh, if it comes out beforehand, that would be good. Velvet Club will join us as well. Yeah, Excellent. Very good. All right. Well, thank you once again for, for All, filling in. Always a pleasure, Trevor. 
Until next time, goodbye. Good night. So you're quite Trump. comfortable saying the word nigger? No, I'm not. Blame with you. There you go. <laughs> well, dear listener, did you enjoy that episode of the podcast? If you did, I've got a favour to ask. Uh, first up, tell some friends. Let them know about the podcast. You'll be discussing something at some time and you might be repeating something I've said. And when you're talking to your friends, say, hey, I heard this on this podcast and it's worth listening to. And maybe pick an episode that you think's a good one and direct them to it. Like grab their phone and go to their podcast app and search for Iron Fist Velvet Glove and subscribe <laughs> on their behalf on their phone and uh, and just put the word out. The other thing is you could become a patron and support the show. So if you go to our website, you'll see a link to Patreon and there are some different options for subscribing and paying per episode. And really the amount that you pay depends on what you get from the podcast. So there's different levels ranging from $1.50 Australian to I think $10 and various ones in between. It's really, what do you think it's worth? Is it worth a cup of coffee? Uh, Is it worth more than that, less than that? Whatever you get out of it, because not everybody gets the same. Maybe you don't listen to the whole thing. Maybe you never talk about it with people. Maybe you really couldn't care less half the time whether the podcast is there. It just, it'll be different for everybody. So if you get a lot out of the podcast, contribute a bit more. If you don't get much, contribute less. But in any event, you can subscribe there. If you don't like the idea of a regular subscription, the website has a link to a PayPal donation. So you could just do a one-off donation every now and again. So there you go. It'd be good to uh, spread the word, get a few more listeners, and that way, look, if we ended up getting more listeners and more money, we could do maybe a second episode or more special episodes, provide some more content. So it's up to you. If you think it's worthwhile, let people know. Thanks.